The word multimedia is the use of a variety of artistic or communicative media using more than one medium of expression or communication. Café is a type of establishment that serves coffee and is known as a place where information can be exchanged. The following is the audio version of the Multimedia Café. Welcome to the Multimedia Cafe. My name is Jason Spies. Thank you, folks, for pulling up a stool and joining the conversation right here at the Multimedia Cafe, a place where you never know who you're going to run into or what we're going to talk about. we got a fantastic program in store for you today. We talk with the man, the myth, the legend, Joe Dancy, one of our energy experts and educators. He, of course, has a full-time job at Southern Methodist University, SMU SMU, if you will. Spindletop Energy Fund faculty advisor, as well as the McGuire Energy Institute professor. So we're very happy to have Mr. Joe Dancy on today's program, talking about a variety of things from a global oil update, what's going on for summer of 2019, some public relations towards the energy industry, also infrastructure, natural gas subsidies, wind, solar, more, 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 all kinds of different things on today's episode of the Multimedia Cafe. All right, I tell you what, I don't know about you folks, but I want to get right into the interview with Joe Dancy. This is Mr. Joe Dancy with SMU Spindletop Energy Fund Faculty Advisor, McGuire Energy Institute Professor. This is Joe Dancy with the SMU McGuire Energy Institute here in Dallas. Thank you for joining the program. We just refer to him as energy expert and educator because he's at so many conferences and he also teaches uh, law as well as energy type uh, topics and courses, if you will. So energy expert and educator, Mr. Joe Dancy, how you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. It's getting warm down here in Dallas, which is good. We're starting to use some electricity to turn those air conditioners which helps out for natural gas demand <laughs> so let's uh, do a little current event here really quickly about the global oil market primed for steep u.s oil inventory this summer talk to me a little bit about that breaking news this morning before we get into some other stuff i gotta you sent me that email so i thought we'd get right into it yeah that's some good stuff there what's going on well, actually, the uh, Raymond James put out a report. It's a weekly report, but they just looked at the uh, crude oil inventory. They've been bullish, Jason, for a couple of years now, maybe a little bit prematurely, but their analysis is right on as far as just the trends. And part of the the price of oil correlates with inventories uh, to a large extent. And when your inventories draw down, generally your prices get a little bit higher. It's supply and demand. I mean, you and I know that. But a lot of people think it's all mysterious. And uh, what they came out this morning with is like they, they pretty much said that uh, uh, this summer they expect uh, some pretty substantial inventory draws, which will probably push oil prices up. And, of course, you and I know, you know, dealing in the Bakken and dealing in the Barnett and dealing in the Permian, I mean, a lot of the stuff, if you have $50 a barrel oil, and you're doing okay when you have seventy dollar barrel oil. You know, generally you're doing really okay, which means you can expand, you can hire people, you can buy more prospects or put on more rigs. Uh, 
And so if oil prices are moved, you know, move relatively steadily and don't just jump, you know, wildly, uh, steadily through the summer and through the fall upward, that might be very bullish for uh, oil prices or for oil companies, for mineral owners, for royalty owners, you know, states like North Dakota and Texas that get a bunch of royalties, the royalty check will get bigger and employees will, um, although, boy, lately it's, it's, I've heard opposite news too, that people are um, not quite as optimistic, but, but, you can't argue with the inventory trends, and I, I think Raymond James is right on with them. So that's that's the positive news. How about when it comes to energy expos? This is one of my favorite parts. You go to so many energy expos and legal expos and water expos and conventions and interstate commerce. I mean, you, you name it, if it has to do with energy, which pretty much everything does, uh, it seems like you're there. You're, you know, you're kind of a trade show nomad. They used to call me the North Dakota nomad. I had, I was trying to think of a different name for you, but um, uh, any energy educator expert ends up what it being. So, talk to me about some of these uh, different uh, conferences and shows that you've been at, and what osmosis information can you share with us? Well, actually, the uh, drilling info put on a. This is their second year doing it. It's invite only. Uh, invite to policymakers, regulators, politicians, um, not many politicians, but uh, executives from the industry as well as technical, I mean, engineers and geologists. And they held this second conference up in Kohler, Wisconsin. Actually, your buddy Lynn Helms, the regulator from North Dakota, was there. There were several other North Dakota people there that uh, uh, got for the life of me. I can't remember some of their names, but they all were. North Dakota regulators as well as North Dakota operators. Uh, not entirely. It was, you know, there are a lot of Permian people there too, and probably more Texans than anybody else, just because we've got more rigs running down here than anybody else. But uh, it was a good, good program. Texas Railroad Commissioner was there. I had dinner or lunch with him, and it was interesting talking to him about, oh, this is the regulatory oversight. And, uh, and what they did is they had a number of uh, presenters, a number of uh, presentations as well as um, a number of, uh, of, of, of um, side breakout sessions where you could actually uh, you know, listen to some presentations and everything from, oh, and actually one of the big ones was on drilling in the Bakken. Uh, what did, what's changed over the last 10 years? And it's really, really positive to, to listen to those stories. But uh, in any event, uh, so that was in Kohler, Wisconsin. It was a three-day program. And, um, and again, one of the things that came across, and, and I, I didn't, you may know this, but I didn't realize the first really horizontal well that was designed and specifically drilled was by Atlantic Richfield or ARCO back in 1984. And, uh, and then in 1981, they pointed out that only 2% of the wells were horizontal, and now 88% are. And I think in North Dakota, probably 95% are, and probably Texas too. But, uh, it's interesting to see the technological revolution that has occurred, and they pointed out you know, costs have come down from you know eleven, ten or eleven million dollars a well to six or seven million dollars a well, depending on how long it is, how many fracks you have. Uh, the uh, efficiencies have gotten much better. The drilling activity, you know, used to take a month to drill a well, and now it takes fourteen days to drill a two-mile well. 
they used to have a, a window of the, to try to stay within the formation of 15 feet. And now they've, they've decreased that window to eight feet. And they said 85 to 90% of the time, this is in the pocket anyway, uh, 85 to 90% of the time, they can, this is incredible, Jason. They can stay within an eight foot window for two to three miles out and, uh, 85 to 90% of the time. And that's, uh, just incredible. Um, and then they were talking, oh, just about what we've seen in recovery so far. And they, and that's sort of a little bit disappointing. A, a number of folks said they were, they had estimated the ultimate recovery, estimated ultimate recovery at X, and they're only getting 80 to 85% of X. So they're, the, they're overestimating what they call the B factor. And I didn't, I didn't know what the B factor is until I had a guest speaker in my class about a year ago. And it's just a decline curve. It depends how steep it is. And depending on the B factor, depends on how much oil you get. So the engineers all sit around. Mr. Joe Dancy, I'm going to ask you to hold that thought for just a moment. We're going to take a brief pause. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Joe Dancy, energy expert and educator currently with Southern Methodist University. My name is Jason Spies, and this is the Multimedia Cafe. Historic, the first full conversion refinery to be built in the U.S. in over 40 years. Innovative, the cleanest, most technologically advanced downstream project ever. The model for future shale basin projects, groundbreaking, with construction resuming in early 2019. The Davis Refinery. Jason Spies, the most trusted voice in the Bakken. Let's bring in Jason Spies, who is a multimedia journalist in North Dakota. Jason, what's your thought on this? My dad always listens to Jason Spies. No one does an interview like Jason Spies. Jason Spies is the most trusted voice in the Bakken. Love listening to Jason Spies on the radio, and if I miss him there, I catch him online. You know, I don't know what justifies being placed in history books, Jason, but in my book, it's in there. <laughs> this is a good thing. Is your boss watching this? Nothing. You need a raise. Welcome back to the Multimedia Cafe. My name is Jason Spies. Thank you, folks, for pulling up a stool and joining the conversation right here at the Multimedia Cafe, a place where you never know who you're going to run into or what we're going to talk about. Coming up next, we continue the conversation with Joe Dancy, energy expert and educator currently at Southern Methodist University. This is Joe Dancy. It's just a decline curve. It depends how steep it is. And depending on the B factor, depends on how much oil you get. So the engineers all sit around 
when they drink beer, unlike you and I that talk about baseball or something, uh, you know, they all talk about B factors and, you know, what it looks like in the the B factor in the Balkans different than the B factor in the Permian. And, but whatever it is, the B factor that's been estimated at least, um, in the Balkan from, from what I heard. And again, this is all, I'm just a canary sitting there, you know, listening and repeating what I heard is, um, they were a little bit too aggressive in selling this stuff to investors as far as exactly what they would get, which obviously sort of screws up your financial model. Your returns aren't quite as good, but they still, still, it's still real profitable to drill wells in the Balkan. And, uh, whether it's oil or uh, the oil you're getting up there, I mean, they noted you know, originally they they didn't think oil. And this is I forgot all about this. It's, you know, they hit natural gas first, and I thought oil molecules were much too long to push through. Um, you know, those compact shales, and uh, you know they did, they are pretty long, but they're getting the the high quality, the lower the lower. Uh, the smaller molecules fuel, which makes for lighter fuels. And uh, in any event, the exciting thing, and I I had heard this before from um, the CEO of Core Laboratories uh, during their conference calls, talks about the state of the industry, and he was talking about unconventional shales like the Balkan or like the Permian, and he was talking about um, enhanced oil recovery and you know, when you hear a CEO talking about it, you sort of you have to be somewhat skeptical because they're selling their product and their book, and they were talking about what a good, a huge future enhanced oil recovery has in in unconventional shales. And the guy that I heard in Kohler, Wisconsin, and again was put on by Drilling Info. Um, uh, the guy I heard in Kohler, and it wasn't a Drilling Info person. It was a the rules were you could sit, you could sit, you could talk but you can't identify who the speakers were. And part of it is they wanted people to be real open as to, you know, how good we were doing or how bad we were doing or how we had to address stuff. But one of the things that came up is, especially in the Balkan, they said enhanced oil recovery might be a huge, huge thing because you're only getting a real small fraction of the oil out of the unconventional. And if you can go in, and of course I know the, the technology they've used in the past is they inject carbon dioxide, and the carbon dioxide is like a paint thinner, and it sort of gets absorbed by the oil, and it makes the oil runnier. And it, so you get a pretty good kick of oil, um, you know, from the enhanced oil enhancement uh, technology. Now, exactly how that technology is going to work, you know, to date, Jason, they sort of have what's called a huff and puff. What they go in is they put a bunch of carbon dioxide, they push it in the well, and they let it sit there for a given amount of time and then they pull it out. They, they turn the well back on and the well remarkably does, you know, much better than it. And the expenses of that are relatively small. Now, as you know, you mean, back in the days, secondary recovery where you injected water and actually, you, so you push it through the field and you're pulling it out of a different well. I, they didn't talk about that. And I don't know whether that's possible with unconventional shales or not, but it was, it was interesting. Um, the other interesting can, thing. Can I jump in okay. just one second jump, here, by the way, Joe? In. I'd love to hear if you've heard about this. Uh, Joe Dancy with us, energy educator and expert with us. Um, huff and puff was that was that your word or was that a word that they're using or that 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 yes. one kind of struck me as weird because if you use the word paint thinner and then huff and puff in the same paragraph, it, it's gonna 
it's it's going to send you know kind of a message there that I'm not sure we want. Yeah, the uh, what was that's the the you know for a carbon dioxide flood. You know, they they, they that was the terminology they're using, huff and puff, which okay. just means essentially you're puffing the carbon dioxide that you have to capture from somewhere and pipe it in or or truck it in. I don't know how the heck. I know there are some carbon dioxide floods I'm familiar with, and generally they have a source and they have a pipeline. I don't know for enhanced oil recovery in a in the Balkan whether you bring the carbon dioxide in by truck or pipeline. I have no clue well, or where they source it either. The, the reason I bring that up was to one of the things that I spoke about and we talked about and – there was a discussion about it at the Energy Expo uh, at Gillette, Wyoming, uh, mm-hmm. just recently, was uh, public relations and just some of the image that oil and gas is going through right now. And, you know, just to recap really quickly, um, you know, when you look at the industry over the last 10 years, we've made more money and spent more money than any other 10-year snapshot period in, in the history of oil and gas. You know, $100 oil. I mean, we had big numbers, and so a lot of money was made, a lot of money was spent. Through the course of that, if we take a step back and look at the body of work, you know, we kind of just got banned in Colorado. Oregon just passed it through the Senate. Um, Wyoming, the BLM land, they did some sort of ban on that. Two presidential candidates want to ban fracking in their or oil and gas in their platforms, so there's a public national discussion going on. And then the new new Green Deal, from my understanding, wants to eliminate fossil fuels in 10 years. So when I take a step back, I remember what uh, a CEO said to me, well, actually at the Rocky Mountain Energy and Infrastructure Conference back in 2014, he brought up the word fracking. And he said, you know, if we would have gave the top firm in Madison Avenue a million dollars to come up with the worst word ever that we could use against our industry, they probably would have came up with fracking and we just did it to ourselves for free. And what he was saying is that, you know, back then, we got to be careful about how we do and describe certain things because sometimes the oil and gas industry can have a herd mentality. And these are his words, a herd mentality. And so we don't necessarily, you know, see the forest from the trees, so to speak. Huff and puff and, you know, these things, I'm just starting to wonder if maybe you're... I, I, there's there's no right or wrong answer here. I'm just saying that if we take a step back and look at the body of work, you know, the, the industry needs an image shot in the boost in the arm or something like that. And keep in mind, I grew up on, you know, Harry the Dirty Dog. So coal and oil, <laughs> oil and gas were embedded as dirty in my mind when I was a kid every day, you know, for my bedtime story. So there's some social engineering here. I don't want to get too deep here in the shallow pool, but at the same time, I want to set some context for your thoughts on just the industry's image and maybe some things like I gave a couple examples uh, of how we could maybe look at it differently. And I don't know, I, I, I'm going to shut up now and let you talk, but do, do you have enough information to continue with the discussion? <laughs> Actually, Jason, you point out a really, really important uh, factor. And you didn't even mention, you mentioned all the other states, but New Mexico has just made a big change too, where... They have a ch- changing government. And actually, that was one of the sessions in Kohler. And unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I was at a different a different program on you know technological advances in drilling versus uh, you know what's happening in New Mexico. And, but apparently, the people came in and said, "God, have you heard what's happening in New Mexico?" And I said, "No." And like you say, the image 
New Mexico, if you look at the oil production, has gone through the roof. They're fast you know, approaching North Dakota and Texas, and they're surpassed Oklahoma, I think, because of the Permian Basin out there. And it's a tremendous – it's all federal lands, but it is a tremendous – economic wealth booster but the image is so poor and i you know i know this because i've dealt a little bit with the university of new mexico and their oil and gas program mr joe dancy i'm going to ask you to hold that thought for just a moment we're going to take a brief pause we come back we'll continue the conversation with joe dancy energy expert and educator currently with southern methodist university my name is jason spies and this is the multimedia cafe Jason Spies, the most trusted voice in the Bakken. I totally agree with you, and the word that you brought into this is fact. You tell the facts, and then you let people make up their own minds. If you want someone who's competent, you don't want to get a bunch of rookies. Love listening to Jason Spies on the radio, and if I miss him there, I catch him online. Let's bring in Jason Spies, who is a multimedia journalist in North Dakota. Um, Jason, what's your thought on this? No one does an interview like Jason Spies. Historic, the first full conversion refinery to be built in the U.S. in over 40 years. Innovative, the cleanest, most technologically advanced downstream project ever. The model for future shale basin projects, groundbreaking, with construction resuming in early 2019. The Davis Refinery. So here's to all of the good thinkers and here's to the lonely drinker but don't you know welcome back to the multimedia cafe my name is jason spies thank you folks for pulling up a stool and joining the conversation right here at the multimedia cafe a place where you never know who you're going to run into or what we're going to talk about coming up next we continue the conversation with joe dancy energy expert and educator currently at Southern Methodist University. This is Joe Dancy. And I, you know, I know this because I've dealt a little bit with the University of New Mexico and their oil and gas program. You know, the image is so poor that um, you can't convince people it's better, you know, to leave it in the ground or to heavily regulate it or to, you know, to control and maybe controlling um, the development at a much slower pace. But um, what people don't realize and i think what at the Kohler wisconsin program and of course these are all mainly industry regulators and industry experts and technology we realize how important energy is you know to you go where you go around the world and see where there's the worst poverty and generally you have energy poverty you can't you don't have oil you don't have coal you burning wood um or cow dung and you know the economics the economics and prosperity and health all correlate with energy, which 
which 90% of which or 85% is oil, gas, and coal. I mean, those are, that's the facts. And so um, the facts that we have a, a bad reputation in parts of the world, you know, due to various reasons, some of which are incredibly justified, you know, is, is one thing, you know, going forward, that's one thing why I like, I go to all these conferences, I do all this writing, I do all these speaking, because I think it's incredibly important that the United States realize we are unique and that we have privately owned minerals. Almost no other country on the face of the earth has that, and we are developing those, and as we're developing those, I mean, where else can you go out with a high school education, work on a rig in North Dakota and make 100000 a year? You know, you can't do that, you know, working, busing tables at a restaurant um, or drilling a well two miles underground, you know, you know, oil well, which the technology spins off into water and spins off into other technologies. So it's, it's it, your point is well taken, and I'm not quite sure, you know, going forward, you know, how to address things. And I'm sure, I know industry has thought about this. I guarantee you the people that were at this conference, all of them, you know, when, it, when you're sitting around the table, you know, they will talk about what a bad reputation we have, how our kids, especially our youth, all think oil and gas is um, despicable. None of them want to work in the industry. You look around, they said, Joe, the problem is there's so many people, you know, 55 years and older that are working in the industry. There are kids, you know, the kids want to, you know, they want to go design computer games or something. So uh, they don't realize how important energy is. And um, which is interesting because I know Bill Gates was interviewed, got about 10 years ago, and they asked him, gee, if you didn't get into computers, what what are the two areas would you advise the youth to get into? And he said one was medical, which makes a lot of sense. The other was energy because you, you have unlimited demand for both. And he was right on, and, of course, he's a big supporter and rightfully so of uh, you know renewable energy efforts and and uh, technology and and uh, anyway it's interesting it's interesting great point Jason I I uh, not quite sure how we address it well and, and nobody really does it's a unique time in our in our history you know where the and this is I, I did say this at the the conference um, that when I grew up energy wasn't political. It was just something that was there. And you complained about your, you know, your Excel bill or your energy bill. Excel is a provider where I'm at. And um, so there was some, you know, th there was some complaints, but it was never like a, a, a red or a blue issue like it is today. And I was interviewing a gentleman from Canada, Terry Edom. He's an author, and I believe it was him. And he brought up a really interesting point, or maybe it was Lauren Scott or Sterling Burnett. I think it was Sterling, Dr. Sterling Burnett who brought it up. Sorry. Not name dropping, just trying to give proper credit. Um, he said that, you know, for a long time, the oil and gas industry invested in government relations, and they should. And then I brought in, in the media, how political and polarizing the government, uh, red and white and this and that, or red and blue, got over the last 10 years. So in essence, what happened was the environmentalists really took advantage of the complacency of politicians to kind of lump things within a red and a blue. And all of a sudden, oil and gas got thrown in with a you know conservative movement, if you will. So it kind of got lumped in with some other polarizing issues. Um, are you following me on that to where all of a sudden the politicians became the PR pieces for the oil companies? 
Um, exactly. And I, well, you know, at this point, most politicians are anti-oil and anti-carbon. Uh, and uh, and it's, a, it's obviously, they think it's a platform that can sell and that can win. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't propose banning oil and gas fracking, banning oil and gas production, you know, restricting severely carbon emissions if you didn't think it was a winning platform. Although you look economically, and if they, if this was mandated, the costs are just incredibly high, and it would take it would take a long time because the technology is still evolving, and it it'll evolve. You never know. Um, yeah, you never know where some of the renewables will go. And actually, I was just up, I was just up visiting a power plant that was built as a coal plant in 1959. In 2007, they converted it to a renewable biofuel plant where they're used, they're burning actually wood, and uh, they're not making any money. <laughs> they're pretty much breaking even. But they say, you know, the forest, the forest are there. You know, it's renewable. We can, it's a perpetual. Um, source of fuel unlike coal or oil or gas and i guess when you look at it that way that it, there is some justification to it but it's much more efficient to burn coal or nuclear or gas which when they said it was interesting jason <laughs> the um they said natural gas has really sort of ruined the electrical market because it's so cheap it's so plentiful it's so easy to put up a peaker plant or a natural gas electric plant that the 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 cost of electricity has come down substantially over the last 10 or 15 years because we found so much gas and it's so easy to throw it online to generate electricity that the com- com- competition which is coal and well in these paper this at least this plant's competition they said it's very difficult for them to make money so you know you're seeing them being shuttered you're seeing them um you know just operating on a shoestring which i thought was an interesting comment so that's something else that society doesn't realize is how prevalent electricity is and how most of it isn't coming from your wind turbine or your solar it's coming from a natural gas generator or a coal there's still a lot of coal power out there um as base load which is great i know in north dakota anywhere from 70 to 90 percent of the lights that are turned on are from coal and people right. don't, people don't know that i mean it's like it's well over 50 percent to where it's like i said it's like 70 to 90 depends on time of the year and all these other things. So I did want to ask you about natural gas subsidies uh, shifting from uh, solar and wind to natural gas. But I also wanted to continue the conversation about the PR. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk about the PR a little bit and then go to the natural gas subsidies. So that's what we call in this industry a tease. So if you're, huh. if you're looking for that. One of the things that also we talked about at the conference was it's really important right now because, you know, I, I, I made this comment that, you know, this is my first time at this conference and I recognize about 75% of the people. And, you know, it seems to me like we have a lot of the same people going to the same events. We're allocating a lot of the same resources and it seems like we're getting the same results. And again, go back to that 10-year body of work, Colorado, New Mexico, Oregon, Wyoming, presidential candidates, New Green Deal. Okay, we had a paradigm shift in the industry. We Every single department has been basically redone from the human resources with big data being brought in to the hydraulic uh, flushing, you know, the, the horizontal flushing that happens. 
the technology, you name it, all kinds of things have changed. So, Mr. Joe Dancy, I'm going to ask you to hold that thought for just a moment. We're going to take a brief pause. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Joe Dancy, energy expert and educator, currently with Southern Methodist University. My name is Jason Spies, and this is the Multimedia Cafe. Coming back home. Jason Spies, the most trusted voice in the Bakken. I totally agree with you, and the word that you brought into this is fact. You tell the facts. And then you let people make up their own minds. If you want someone who's competent, you don't want to get a bunch of rookies. Love listening to Jason Spies on the radio. And if I miss him there, I catch him online. Let's bring in Jason Spies, who is a multimedia journalist in North Dakota. Um, Jason, what's your thought on this? No one does an interview like Jason Spies. Historic. The first full conversion refinery to be built in the U.S. in over 40 years. Innovative, the cleanest, most technologically advanced downstream project ever. The model for future shale basin projects, groundbreaking, with construction resuming in early 2019. The Davis Refinery. Welcome back to the Multimedia Cafe. My name is Jason Spies. Thank you, folks, for pulling up a stool and joining the conversation right here at the Multimedia Cafe, a place where you never know who you're going to run into or what we're going to talk about. Coming up next, we continue the conversation with Joe Dancy, energy expert and educator currently at Southern Methodist University. This is Joe Dancy. The technology, you name it, all kinds of things have changed. So our public relations, we should really look at possibly doing a paradigm shift there, too. So one of the things that I brought up was there's this company out in, I think it's Pennsylvania, and they've got a minor league baseball team they sponsor, the Junior Frackers, you know, and this way they're engaging with people that are not going to the energy conferences every year. You know, they're engaging with new people and trying to engage with kids that are not a part of the industry on a day-to-day life. There's, um, there's another guy up in Canada who's trying to uh, mine bitcoins through natural gas. You know, what a crazy idea. Um, so he's trying to do something completely different as well. Here at The Crude Life, one of the things that we do is we engage with uh, regional and local singer-songwriters and we use them as our bumper music. So in essence, what we've done is we've figured out a way to have musicians promote the oil and gas industry as opposed to protesting it. Now, is it going to change the industry's image overnight? No, but at least it's a step in the right direction, and it's a thought. It's outside the box. You know, we're spo- I sent you the belt of uh, the uh, greatest environmental uh, champion on, on the planet, Johnny Green, because I wanted you to see what we're doing. We're sponsoring an environmentalist because he believes that the industry has changed so much, and they've gotten so technical, and the environmentalists have changed so much that the oil and gas industry are truly the leaders right now of trying to save the planet with their reclamation programs, their implementation of regulations into third world countries. When you look at the big picture, the oil and gas industry is really doing more good to save the planet than harm, whereas today's environmentalist is more of a texting, trolling, coffee-curing, drinking environmentalist, 
and the number one polluter on the planet is cell phones. So we kind of, I'm like, oh, this guy's great. He's going to go out to barbecues and, and all kinds of Fourth of July parades and, and engage with kids and their parents and, and, and totally change the entire conversation. Instead of oil and gas being the number one polluter, it's cell phones. And we need to just power them down for an hour a day and just take the narrative back. And instead of playing catch up, because the industry played catch up is, is right now. So that's my, that's my really long winded question here is that, do you think the industry needs to engage with people outside the industry? And, and did anything that I'm kind of talking about ring a bell with, you know, the same people at the same conferences, et cetera? Well, it, it is interesting. And I, I'm not sure the industry knows how to respond or the regulators. And I mean, it's a, it's a concern across the board because these folks all know, like you and I, how important energy is and how the good jobs, how it generates good jobs. But how, how do you sell this to, you know, someone who's convinced that, that global warming is a matter of life and death and within 10 years we're all going to be dead? I mean, and literally, there's people out there, Jason. I had a hard time believing that people would actually believe that, but there are people who think within 10 years, you know, the Earth's going to be 15 degrees warmer. And it is interesting. I, I've done some studies, and this has been a number of years ago, but, you know, we could take the you know, North America climate and drought, drought cycles, and you go back six or 700 years, and I was wondering, how do you go back six or 700 years? We only, you know, really been on over here for... You know, a few hundred years, and you could do it with tree rings, and which can give you um, some data as well as other scientific to determine, you know, temperatures. And temperatures vary sub- substantially, as well as the water cycles, which some people now are saying, gee, global warming is causing floods up in North Dakota and in Mississippi and everywhere else. And we need to control. Um, it's interesting, you know, to educate people. I'm not. Sh- I'm really not sure industry has a handle. I'm not sure regulators have a handle. I could tell you educators don't have a handle uh, on it. And um, on your cell phone comment, that is sort of interesting. I agree with that. And one of the shocking things, I didn't realize this. If you you put um, the consumer, the number of, the amount of electricity that's consumed globally by country, the amount of electricity consumed by cell phones would be like number three behind China and the United States. <laughs> and so, if, if, oh, if but, cell but, phones, but here's what people don't understand phones, about cell phones: it's a three, um, it's a, it's a three prong attack. You've got um, the rare earth minerals, so you have all the mining and the rare earth minerals that are not very advantageous for the planet, right? Second, right. you have the manufacturing of the cell phones. So when you take into account all the energy that's needed to manufacture all the pieces and the equipment, et cetera, okay? And then number three, and this is the one that hardly anybody talks about, and this is why the uh, today's environmentalist has actually become the biggest polluter. This is another reason why we love Johnny Green is because it's the data centers. The data centers, right. the amount of heat and the energy and the air conditioning it takes to, to keep them cool is really that kind of that, um, you don't want to say dirty little secret because, you know, what it is. But so the reason Johnny Green, we love him so much is because he's an all of the above uh, energy guy. He thinks every energy has a purpose because we need energy. Now, um, he happens to believe that wind was more 
um, efficient 100 years ago when farmers used it to get water in, in, uh. in comparison to today. And so he calls a spade a spade there. He says solar, yeah, they've done, they've done okay, but as far as being economical, really all you can do is charge your cell phone and you know have some good camping equipment. But as far as panels for your house, no, they're not there yet. So it's, it's not a deal. Uh, natural gas, he looks at as really more of a free energy because there's so much of it. And this is where I wanted to ask you about the subsidies part. Imagine if we lived in a world where we took 50% or 100% of the subsidies towards solar and wind. They've had 40 years. Yeah, that could help a lot. Just just pushing, uh, especially venture capital money. I know exports are, if you've seen the charts, and I know you have, the exports of natural gas either liquefied or, you know, obviously we're, we're constrained by geography. You can't export gas by pipeline to Europe, but you can to Mexico. And Mexico huh, is a perfect example. And I tell my students, Jason, I mean, the, the minerals down there are owned by the government. And uh, as such, they haven't had as an aggressive exploration and development program as they saw in the United States or we've seen. And so they actually are major importers of natural gas and you know, of crude oil. A lot of their, their Cantarell field has was discovered in the late 70s and it's pretty well depleted now. That's the offshore field and and uh just the when you when you have state-owned minerals it's difficult to get economic incentives and people to take risks um you're you're focused on other other issues so um a a you know natural gas has a tremendous potential and i know oh god years ago it's been 20 now we did a bunch of research here in dallas uh worked for the gas company as a lawyer and we did a lot of research in the compressed natural gas vehicles, and I drove one back then. It was actually a, it's a gasoline and natural gas vehicle where you could flip a switch, so you didn't get straight away. And that was Joe Dancy with Southern Methodist University, energy educator and expert, right here on the Multimedia Cafe. To listen to the full-length interview or to check out other exclusive interviews, visit thecrudelife.com. That's thecrudelife.com. The Multimedia Cafe is part of the Crude Life Media Network. Check us out on Facebook and Twitter. All of those social media links can be found at thecrudelife.com. That's going to do it for today's episode of the Multimedia Cafe. We'll be back tomorrow at this time on this radio station. And for those of you downloading us on podcasts or maybe on iTunes, thank you very much. And if you could leave a comment, I found out this weekend how important those are. So apparently, if you like the show, Please leave a comment. We'd appreciate it very much. Helps our ranking out. And uh, yeah, thank you. I just found that out. So I'm not sure how to ask, except for if you like it, leave a comment. That's about all I can really ask of you. So thank you very much. We'll be back tomorrow, this time on this radio station. From the staff here at the Multimedia Cafe, my name is Jason Spies, asking you to save your life and enjoy the spice. Historic, the first full conversion refinery to be built in the U.S. in over 40 years. Innovative, the cleanest, most technologically advanced downstream project ever. The model for future shale basin projects, groundbreaking, with construction resuming in early 2019. The Davis Refinery.
Jason Spies, the most trusted voice in the Bakken. I totally agree with you, and the word that you brought into this is fact. You tell the facts, and then you let people make up their own minds. If you want someone who's competent, you don't want to get a bunch of rookies. Love listening to Jason Spies on the radio, and if I miss him there, I catch him online. Let's bring in Jason Spies, who is a multimedia journalist in North Dakota. Um, Jason, what's your thought on this? No one does an interview like Jason Spies. 